Hey everyone, me again, Laszlo Montgomery, coming to you as usual from the ChinaHistoryPodcast.com. After getting bogged down in all the drama, tragedy, acts of revenge and vengeance of 1966 to 1969, we're finally into calmer but nonetheless very treacherous waters in 1970. As we begin part seven of this overview of the Cultural Revolution, we see Mao kind of coming to his senses. He's admitting, well, not openly admitting, of course, but in his actions and the directions he gave Zhou Enlai, he's telling the premier to go all out on damage control and to try and get the state apparatus patched up. Mao's now looking to start, well, patching things up with his key comrades who had gotten burned and inconvenienced from Mao's Red Guards. Mao sat on his hands and let most of them all get roughed up and degraded. Liu Shaoqi died. Luo Ching, we remember, tried to jump off his roof and kill himself. And a lot of things like this happened. So now Mao is starting to reach out to those who survived and carefully bring them back into the fold. And most important of all, Mao will reach out to the four marshals, Xu Xiangqian, Ye Jianying, Nie Rongzhen, and Chen Yi, four guys he knew he could trust, and he's going to ask them, who is China's real threat? And they will recommend to Mao that he reach out to the United States, because in their opinion, based on what they saw in 1969-1970, the USSR was China's biggest threat. And a new U.S.-China relationship will be a huge game-changer for China as far as China's political relationship with the Soviet Union, not to mention the whole world. This whole idea that Mao had, you know, to start talking to the Americans and take the chance to begin having relations and seeing where this all might lead, no one in China could possibly make that call except Mao. After all that had happened, all the blood spilled in China and all the suffering, the huge hit to the economy, ranting about capitalism and imperialism day in, day out for four years, and now to talk about cozying up to the worst rogue of them all. This is quite a move. Now, this whole notion of talking to the United States added a whole new dimension to the dynamic of the Cultural Revolution. Lin Biao and his closest allies, for one, were dead set against it, although Lin outwardly went along with Mao. As long as there was always this threat of war, Lin Biao's stature could be assured. The existential threat from the U.S. military was one of the main props used to keep the PLA in this wartime mentality. By 1970, Mao began to feel a little threatened by this, and it was Lin Biao's first order, which we discussed last episode when he went ahead and mobilized the whole PLA, you know, which is no small thing to do. A lot of stuff has to happen. And he went and did it, and Mao was more aware of the danger Lin and his PLA allies posed than ever before. So cozying up to the U.S. brought Mao a double benefit. First, it would cool things down with them, substantially, and China could stop worrying that the U.S. was going to launch a nuclear strike or something drastic. And at the same time, it was a big card to play against the Soviet Union and greatly diminished Brezhnev's hand in the great game they had going with China. Lin Biao, of course, being the creature he was, picked up on all this at once, no doubt. And if he didn't, surely his wife, Ye Chun, did. 
So Lin began to see Mao playing these, I don't know what you'd call them, games with Lin, trying to provoke him into some kind of reaction, always testing Lin, baiting him. In August of 1970, at the second plenum in Lushan, factions within the military and the CCRG, the Central Cultural Revolution Group, all began coalescing into sides. At Lushan, the very place where the meeting was held that swatted down Peng Dehuai and elevated Lin Biao, the whole matter of Lin, his hold on the PLA and the PLA's hold on overall political power, turned into high drama. There were three main sides or groups. You had the PLA, led by Lin Biao. You had the CCRG, still, who ran the all-important ideology of the times. And then there was Zhou Enlai, the usual voice of reason and practicality needed to run the levers of state. But all was not well at the pinnacles of power, though outwardly BFFs. Mao's wife Jiang Qing and Lin's wife Ye Qun were political rivals, both suspicious of the other. And when Chen Boda saw the future and decided it was better to join the Lin Biao team rather than stay with the Jiang Qing team, that's when things began to fracture. You had five people who essentially ran the CCRG. Chen Boda, Jiang Qing, Zhang Chunqiao, Yao Wenyuan, and Wang Hongwen. With Chen Boda's defection, so to speak, that only left four. And these became known as the Gang of Four later on. So Chen Boda's shifting of his loyalty to Lin's faction caused a bit of a rumble. So August 1970 rolls around and everybody is settled in at scenic Lushan in Jiangxi province, just north of Lake Poyang, where in 1363 the largest naval battle to date had been fought, which brought Zhu Yuanzhang to power as the first Ming Dynasty emperor. This second plenum all started off innocently enough. The topic was who should replace Liu Shaoqi. The state president office was still unfilled. At the Ninth Party Congress, Lin Biao had officially been made Mao's number two. But if so, why hadn't Mao yet elevated Lin to take over the spot vacated by the late Liu Shaoqi? Why was it left open instead? Was Mao up to something? Of course he was. Lin Biao made his opening chess move and suggested Chairman Mao also take the largely ceremonial role of state president as well as, you know, of course, party chairman. Lin said Mao should hold both positions. Now, this was a reasonable suggestion. Chen Boda, Zhou Enlai, and Kang Sheng, they agreed. But Mao said no. He said the post wasn't important and mostly ceremonial. But if the post were made important, it should go to Lin Biao. That's what Mao said. Now, what did this mean? After so many years, all these leaders assembled at Lushan knew how Mao worked. Here he was, once again, giving these non-committal, cryptic answers that didn't say yes and didn't say no. And everyone had to think hard how to respond, knowing that the wrong answer could cost them everything that they had managed to gain up till now. So Lin made his opening move, saying Mao should take the post. Mao says it should be Lin, but with the huge caveat regarding the role of the state president position. So what to do? Well, Lin punted for now. This would have to wait. The next topic seemed innocuous enough. This concerned a discussion between the military and the CCRG over whether or not Mao had developed Marxism-Leninism with genius 
creatively and comprehensively. And if so, it should be inserted into the Constitution. Lynn had raised this back when the Constitution was being rewritten at the recent Ninth Party Congress. Mao had vetoed it back then, and now Lin was raising it again. Zhang Chunqiao opposed what Lin said. Now, Zhang Chunqiao had come to symbolize the worst excesses of the Cultural Revolution. So one of Lin's proxies, the Air Force Commander Wu Fa-xian, argued that Zhang Chunqiao, and therefore the whole CCRG, was saying Mao was not a genius as far as his contribution to Marxism-Leninism goes. Chen Boada here took the side of Lin Biao and the PLA against his CCRG allies. It got ugly really fast. The CCRG were declared to be running dogs of the imperialists. They were called revisionists and counter-revolutionaries as well. The PLA and the CCRG were now openly attacking each other. Jiang Qing went straight to Mao and, you know, complained, of course, and Mao had been watching events unfold, saying nothing, watching, waiting, and then once things began to flame up, he made his move. Mao called the Politburo together, and there, Chen Boda was denounced by the chairman in the strongest possible ways. Mao called him a false Marxist, a longtime KMT agent, and for good measure, he called Chen a longtime ally of Wang Ming. Wang Ming, you may recall from an earlier episode, was the leader of the so-called 28 Bolsheviks and Mao's most formidable rival for control of the CCP in the 1930s. So being called pro-Wang Ming was the same as being called anti-Mao Zedong. With this sudden shift in which way the wind was blowing, no one came to Chen Boda's defense. Seeing Mao's reaction, it was best to let Chen twist in the wind and be resigned to his fate. And with that, Lin decided, let's just drop the whole idea of whether or not Mao was a genius with regard to Marxism-Leninism. Mao turned on the PLA and demanded they all make a self-criticism with regard to this whole thing. Now, everyone in Lin Biao's camp was scrambling, having obviously pissed off Mao, but not quite knowing how. And Chen Boda's illustrious career came to an end. Any attack on Lin Biao was an attack on the military's influence on power in China. This is what Mao was trying to tamp down. At the second plenum of the Ninth Central Committee, Lin knew for certain that he had lost favor with the great helmsman. The rest of 1970 was filled with behind-the-scenes drama and scrambling to remain on top. Old friends became new blood enemies. Outwardly, it was, you know, the same old, same old. But now, everything was out in the open. Mao was already starting to place some of his own military men in the PLA to check the balance of power enjoyed by Lin. Mao was going around saying things like, you know, a certain person aims to become head of state, split the party and grab power. And also things like, it is difficult for someone who has taken the lead in committing major errors to reform. Mao would drop hints like this all over the place. Anyone with two brain cells knew Lin Biao had clearly lost favor with the chairman and he was on his way out. Maybe it was real, maybe it was just that Mao was nearing the end of his life and in his infirmity he was irrationally wrestling with the notion of a Chairman Lin after he was gone. At this point, after the Lushan plenum, it was over between these two, and they both knew it. 
This leads us to the year 1971. We all know what's going to happen. Lin Piao is going to make his move before Chairman Mao makes his move. The way Mao had been carrying on for most of 1971, Lin knew he was toast. So did Lin's son, Lin Li Guo, a high-ranking Air Force officer under the wing of loyal Lin Piao supporter Wu Fa-xian. Together, along with Lin's scheming and ambitious wife, Ye Chun, they planned to launch a coup d'etat, the centerpiece of which was the assassination of Chairman Mao. And this is the so-called Lin Piao incident of September 12th to 13th, 1971. This is the infamous Project 571, Wu Qi Alas, I'm not going to get into the details of the Lin Piao incident, but suffice to say, all kinds of documents have been released, and it's 41 years since Lin's plane went down in Mongolia. I would say a remote part of Mongolia, but pretty much every place is remote there. Although a lot is known about the events leading up to and immediately after Lin's plane went down, the truth is, we don't know everything. But with this sudden dramatic event happening like it did in September 1971, the Cultural Revolution really hit an iceberg. The Lin Piao incident, by the way, will be covered later on as a separate podcast. For now, we'll just, you know, go with the briefest of details. The fall of Lin Piao was not good for the PLA as far as their control over the CCP went. Over the last couple of years, they had grown in power, and their numbers comprised a big slice of the Central Committee pie. The whole Lin Piao incident made them look bad, and Mao milked this for all it was worth to beat down the PLA and diminish all the power and dominance they had built up under the leadership of Lin and his faction. Mao was able to breathe a little easier now, and he felt their wouldn't be any PLA coups on the horizon. But this was quite a shock. Not only was it a political shock, it was also a big shock to the whole Cultural Revolution. Lin's most key generals were all gotten rid of. They were the chickens used to scare the monkeys, so to speak. It didn't take long to get everyone else in line to denounce Lin Piao and go along with you know, whatever the party center said. It was a time for the disgraced old guard PLA generals to all have a silent moment of reflection. Soon their country would call on them again to save the day. Lin had been their old comrade in arms going back to the 30s and 40s, but Lin had turned on them for the sake of his own ambitions. Now Lin Piao was gone, and these survivors each took their turns to put their swords in Lin Piao's legacy. Lin's death came at an inconvenient time. Kissinger had come to China to work on the U.S.-China opening just before and just after Lin's plane crashed. Mid-September was too close for comfort to the annual National Day celebration when the top leaders would mount the viewing podium overlooking Tiananmen Square. Two weeks wasn't enough time to sort this whole debacle out. The inner circle of the party center had to figure out how to spin something like this of such great magnitude. This whole thing had to be carefully thought out as far as how to break it to the good old Lao Bai Xing. Mao broke the news first to the old guard of the party, those who had endured the common humiliations in the early phases of the Cultural Revolution. They were told first. So they had to do the unthinkable. 
and cancel the National Day celebration. This was the deadest of giveaways that something wasn't right. And besides, over two weeks, not a peep from Lin Piao or any of his people. And of course, you know, rumors got out and spread. The official version from the party center came out in October. And over the period of the next few months, word slowly leaked out. Lin Piao went from being Mao's closest comrade in arms and chosen successor to being called a swindler of the Liu Shaoqi kind. For the chairman, this was devastating. And these last five years of Mao's life saw a once great man in a steady and permanent decline. Mao Zedong, now 78 years old, as 1971 came to a close, still had plenty of fight left in him, but with this second terrible defeat in 10 years and time running out for him, he was faced with some difficult choices. He would only live for five more years, as would the Cultural Revolution. All of these men, these close comrades of Mao, they were all getting up there in years. January 26, 1972, one of China's most beloved leaders, Marshal Chen Yi, passed away. For those months following Lin Biao's betrayal and the massive damage it caused Mao personally, the chairman could hardly rouse himself from bed. After the way his cultural revolution turned out, he was no doubt brooding in his solitude that they were going to pin this one on him too, just like the Great Leap Forward. It was time for damage control. So that morning, when the leaders were all preparing to bid farewell to their dear comrade Chen Yi, Mao spontaneously told his minders he wanted to go to the funeral. Mao hadn't gone to anyone's funeral during the entire Cultural Revolution, so when he suddenly announced early in the morning that he was going to attend Chen Yi's funeral ceremony, Zhou Enlai had to spring into action to adjust the choreography a little. You know, there were two kinds of events, those that Mao went to and those that he didn't bother to show up. Mao not only went, but participated in the funeral arrangements as well. Those who were present that day would later recount the dramatic moment when Mao entered the memorial hall where the ceremony was, looking old, frail, and pathetic, with tears in his eyes, obviously not well, clad in his pajamas, slippers, wearing an overcoat. I mean, remember, it was January in Beijing. It was freezing cold that day, and he had a hat on. He looked terrible. And he greeted Chen Yi's widow and choked on his words, praising Chen Yi for everything that he was. No doubt, Chen Yi's widow wondered where were Mao's tears when she and her dear departed husband were being savaged by red guards. Mao claimed ignorance of their plight, but <laughs> no one would dare lay a pinky on someone like Chen Yi without Mao's okay. So, here was Mao at Chen Yi's funeral, showing maximum contrition, looking pathetic and old and crying out as lugubriously as the next one at the funeral, and the message was not lost on anyone. Mao was reaching out to those he had forsaken and wasn't exactly begging their forgiveness, but was sending a clear signal that he had erred and needed them back. This would be Chairman Mao's last and final public appearance. From this point on, he would not be seen again by the Chinese people. 
In so many words, Mao gave Zhou Enlai the okay to start bringing some of these disgraced comrades back. This was a task I'm sure Premier Zhou had no problem or second thoughts about carrying out. To get the military back in shape, Mao mostly relied on Ye Jianying. Well, the Cultural Revolution, as I said, still hadn't run out of gas yet. Though severely degraded, it wasn't over until Mao said it was over, or until Mao died. Whatever came first. One thing was for sure. If they wanted to quit and declare victory, they had the ultimate scapegoat on their hands in Lin Biao. And soon after, Mao attacked the use of the word February countercurrent. That period in 1967 when Ye Jianying and the other marshals all spoke up against the Cultural Revolution. So Mao brought these guys back and reversed his decisions on the February countercurrent. The whole thing was blamed on Lin Piao. And remember Tan Chen Lin and Chen Zai Dao? Chen Zai Dao from the Wuhan incident. They were typical of the kinds of PLA top brass who were brought back, their crimes committed during the Cultural Revolution, forgiven. In fact, Mao began the process to rehabilitate all those senior officials and military men who, once in place, would engineer the return of Deng Xiaoping later on. Well, Nixon came and went in February of 72. A few months later, in May of 1972, Zhou Enlai was diagnosed with bladder cancer. And suddenly, the pressure on the premier became much greater now that his death could come at any time. So many wrongs from the Cultural Revolution needed to be righted. And only Zhou Enlai was left standing to facilitate all this. The most capable and competent leaders were either dead incapacitated or incarcerated, or in Deng Xiaoping's case, in complete disgrace. And now, practically speaking, Zhou was the number two guy next to Mao, and with what happened to Liu Shaoqi and now Lin Biao, the great premier couldn't have been too terribly comfortable about standing in those dubious shoes. In any case, Zhou Enlai at his age was hardly a good candidate for successor to Mao. This matter... Mao's successor, had to be resolved on top of everything else that was going on with, you know, reconstruction of the government, the military, you know, not to mention within society itself. And there was still the much degraded but still viable cultural revolution to pay attention to. When people look back and talk about how great Zhou Enlai was, and all the amazing feats he accomplished in his long career going back to the 1920s, the work he did to try and put everything back together in China after the fall of Lin Biao in September 1971 was truly one of the manifestations of his greatness. The Cultural Revolution had done its damage all over the place in what it did to people's personal lives and how it led to so much destruction of China's cultural heritage. Its effect on almost everyone in the entire country was so profound. In 1972, when it came time to start sorting everything out and putting it back together, the government was in such shambles. So Joe had to bring everyone who was necessary back from the brink and restore things to the point where the country once again had a functional government. Nixon may have come and gone, and all this international light that was being shown on the PRC and all the buzz in the air about, you know, what if and China's future. Amidst all this, Zhou Enlai tried to do what was necessary to undo the damage. 
Now, one by one into 1972, the old guard started coming back. Not Deng Xiaoping, though. He was still down in Jiangxi province working as a factory worker, you know, living a life of humility. But on February 20th, 1973, Deng was called back to Beijing. By April 12th, 1973, Deng was hosting Prince Sihanouk at a banquet. Now remember, Deng, he was the flip side of Liu Shaoqi. Deng was the second most evil face of the great proletarian cultural revolution. But here he was, back. This almost had the CCRG and all like-minded radicals foaming at the mouth. Compared to what was going down between 1966 and 69, the early 70s were a very low-key time for the Cultural Revolution. Once you had that 10.0 earthquake of Lin Biao's one-way flight to Mongolia, it took a good two years to bounce back from that. The CCRG, or what was left of it, was now in the hands of Jiang Qing, Zhang Chunxiao, and Yao Wenyuan. It was remolded into something now called the CPG, or Central Propaganda Group. As they did their usual mischief in the new post-Lin Biao, post-Liu Shan era in 1972-1973, Zhou Enlai continued his work to keep them at bay, limit the damage they can do, and patch things up at home and abroad. After all the craziness that had gone on the past five, six years, Joe had a lot of explaining to do on the diplomatic front. On October 25, 1971, there was the historic vote at the UN that gave China's seat on the Security Council to the PRC. This, along with Nixon's visit, put China into a whole different league as far as international relations and China's place in the world was concerned. Japan, Britain, and others, one by one, turned their back on their longtime allies in Taiwan and recognized the PRC instead. So you had this whole dramatic backdrop to what was still going down in what I guess we could call the Cultural Revolution Part 2. The sun began to come out again in 1972-1973. People began to see the first traces of relaxation in many of the strictest taboos in society. You know, stuff you could say or read, you know, that would have gotten you in a whole lot of trouble in 1967 were now okay and everyone was doing it. There was always a line the CCP drew in the sand that demarcated how far one could go with your comments. And if you crossed that line back in 1973, despite the air of anti-radicalism everywhere, you could still get into some major trouble. Hu Deyong found out the hard way. He was a loyal CCP member from Chengdu who disseminated a scathing indictment on the Cultural Revolution. Hu Deyong really summed things up well when he said, quote, The Great Cultural Revolution has subjected more than 90% of the cadres and more than 60% of the masses to mindless attacks of every possible kind, political persecution, sometimes even physical ruin. It has seriously affected the eagerness with which cadres and the masses build socialism as well as the loyalty they feel towards the party. And, he also said, the great cultural revolution has had an extremely destructive impact on industrial production, with production stagnating, financial resources drying up, the state treasury being emptied, and the people's standard of living declining. 
He also said, the great cultural revolution has led to an unprecedented degeneration in social morals and has guided young people onto a road of criminality. And for that, Tu De Yong was given life in prison. This was just one example. All over China, people began to speak up. A lot of people sacrificed their lives to get what had to be said off their chest. The most damning denunciations of the Cultural Revolution were given, one more eloquent than the one before. Some of the perpetrators would be caught and imprisoned or executed. Some would never be found. You know, people all over the world have always found ways with their graffiti and secret handbills and posters, you know, to always find a way to say what was on everybody in society's mind. The matter of the legacy of the Cultural Revolution, whether Mao made mistakes or not, and what was supposed to be blamed on Lin Piao, these were matters solely for the top leadership to pass judgment on. No matter what truth lay behind these statements being made, if it didn't come out of the party center, you had to keep it to yourself. And so it dragged on at the topmost level. How to pin this whole thing on Lin Piao? You know, what were his exact crimes? How should he be labeled? You know, hairs were split on the language to use to explain Lin's errors. Mao had to do something else real fast. He needed to find another successor. He began to groom Wang Hongwen. Remember him? He was the original Shanghai hothead leftist who had breathed so much life into the Shanghai Red Guard movement. He was credited with being the first to paste up a Datsu Bao condemning the local Shanghai party leadership. His leftist credentials had always been top-notch. Mao saw something in Wang Hongwen that made him call the Shanghai leader to Beijing in September 1972. Mao met with Wang and was clearly grooming him. Wang wasn't even 40 years old yet. He had come from nothing. It was socially what you could refer to as, you know, a worker. But here he was, sitting with Chairman Mao. You might ask, why would Mao choose this guy? You know, so obviously not qualified. Mao was taking a risk, still clinging to his leftist beliefs. Mao felt his legacy was probably in better hands with someone like Wang Hongwen in charge than with, you know, someone else. You know, someone Zhou Enlai might, might want. Mao was weary of Premier Zhou. He was weary about what might happen if he were to die before Zhou. There had to be someone he could use whose loyalty he could count on, but who at the same time could take some of the wind out of Zhou Enlai's sails. Therefore, after three and a half years in political oblivion, Mao calls Deng Xiaoping back to the capital, and as I said, on March 9th, he's fully restored. But at the 10th Party Congress, hastily called to undo you know, some of the more politically embarrassing parts of the 9th Party Congress, Deng didn't get into the Politburo. That would come later. Yipu Yipu. In no shape or form was the great success of the Cultural Revolution deconstructed, other than slamming Lin Piao, the party wasn't quite ready yet to pass judgment on the Cultural Revolution, which technically was still going on. To show that the Cultural Revolution and leftist ideology still mattered, Mao made sure Wang Hongwen made it to the new Central Committee. The embarrassing parts of the Constitution were snipped out and everything that needed to be undone was undone. The military, which had occupied a high degree of seats in the Central Committee, 
saw all their gains from the Ninth Party Congress lost. All those old guard members who had been hit by the Cultural Revolution tidal wave were rehabilitated. The new standing committee lineup for the 10th Party Congress were Mao, Zhou, Ye Jianying, Wang Hongwen, Kangsheng, Zhang Chunqiao, Zhu De, Dong Biwu, and Li Desheng, a nice mix of leaders whose loyalty Mao could count on. This was a mix of radicals and old guard. In fact, there evolved three groups at this time, radicals, beneficiaries, and survivors of the Cultural Revolution. The whole dynamic now in Beijing pitched the radicals, or at least what was left of them, against the survivors. The beneficiaries were caught in the middle, hoping, you know, whoever wound up on top, you know, that they would have a place. The battle concerned one thing only. Who would succeed? Mao Zedong. But if anyone thought Mao was giving up on leftism or the Cultural Revolution, it came as a shock when it was learned Mao had ranked Wang Hongwen first in the ranking after himself and Zhou Enlai. This was quite an extraordinary rise for a, you know, for a nobody like Wang Hongwen. So Jiang Qing, Zhang Chunqiao, and many of the radicals still around at the closing of the 10th Party Congress, they began to plot their way to supremacy. The only thing stopping them was Zhou Enlai, who by this time in mid-1973 was ailing severely. In true Cultural Revolution tradition, January 1974, we saw the Pi Lin Pi Kong campaign, the movement to criticize Lin Biao and Confucius. Huh? What did those two have in common? Well, it was later found that Lin had been in possession of Confucianist literature and, in fact, had admired the sage. What this whole thing was, initially, that is, was a feeble attempt by Jiang Qing to take a stab at Zhou Enlai and other so-called modern-day Confucianists. Not that Zhou was Confucius or anything, but in a, in a kind of a subtle way, the premier could be compared to the sage, but more directly as a manifestation of the bourgeoisie. But Jiang Qing, she was a mere child compared to someone as skilled and brilliant as Zhou Enlai, so he was able to twist this Pilin Pikong movement and turn it into a campaign to criticize Lin Biao and, by extension, all the radicals who were part of his coterie. This, of course, included Chen Boda, who had made the mistake of moving all his chips from Chairman Mao to Lin Biao. I guess everything bad that you could dig up about the Cultural Revolution, and you sure didn't have to dig deep, it was hung up at this five-week-long campaign, and everything was pinned on Lin Biao and his closest followers. 1974 saw endless bickering between the radicals and the survivors. As his cancer progressed, Zhou Enlai became more and more infirm. But his infirmity and physical weakness was coming at a terrible time. Mao was not well either. In fact, Mao had not been too healthy for a while now, and the words, he can go at any time, could easily have been applied to the chairman. So the urgency to mop up the excesses of the Cultural revolution became more urgent than ever before. But Zhou was dying, and Mao saw there was no one else who could fill these shoes. His new protege, Wang Hongwen, forget it. He didn't have anything except impeccable red credentials. There was no one. No one except Deng Xiaoping, now 71 years old. On February 1st, 1975, 
Premier Joe called the leaders from the state council to his bedside and told them this was it for him. He couldn't go on any longer and that from now on, Deng Xiaoping was in charge and spoke for him. Mao was fine with this because this is what he had planned for anyway. To bring China back from this cataclysm that was the Cultural Revolution, Mao couldn't depend on his beloved radicals. Although the radicals fought for power, Mao knew once they had it, they wouldn't know what to do with it except abuse it, I imagine. Mao was dying, but he still had enough sense to see the gathering storm. He saw what Jiang Qing was up to. Mao had hoped Wang Hongwen would be able to be the one to join together with Deng Xiaoping and you know, would not allow himself to be coerced by Jiang Qing into becoming her boy. But she was too strong, and Mao was no doubt disappointed to see Wang Hongwen turn into one of Jiang Qing's pawns in her quest for power. And so he did what he had to do. He made Deng Xiaoping more powerful. Not only was he a senior vice premier in the state council, Mao also made him a CCP vice chairman as well as a vice chairman of the Military Affairs Commission, as well as PLA chief of staff. That's a lot of titles. And unfortunately for Jiang Qing's team, it was a ton of authority. Mao stepped back and let this all happen. The radicals were not in a good position now. Wang Hongwen, who thought he was being groomed to be next in line, knew with Deng back and being granted all these titles and powers, he was not going to gain the top spot he now coveted. To Jiang Qing, it was a disaster. She hated Deng, and the feelings were mutual. The urgency to come out on top between her radicals and Deng's allies became greater than ever. Whoever lost this power struggle would be destroyed. By mid-1975, it was clear to all that all that the Cultural Revolution had put in place, all the damage done, all the new rules and ways of doing things were slowly and methodically being undone. Deng had no time to talk about radical ideas and leftist ideology and revolution. The only revolution Deng spoke of were the four modernizations that Zhou Enlai had said were of the utmost necessity. Zhou was dying... But Deng Xiaoping now wore the great premier's mantle, and fortunately for everyone except those supporting the radicals, he knew how to use this power. And Deng went after everyone who was still clinging to the ways that were okay between 1966 and 70, but totally not okay now. Whoever opted to swim against the new current and butt heads with Deng Xiaoping found themselves down for the count. This period in 1975 was a perfect example in world history of the right man being around at the right time. Now, as for more of what Deng Xiaoping did, you could go listen to the uh, Deng Xiaoping episodes 4 and 5. You know, I'd like to wind things down for now. It's not like the radicals just bowed and submitted to Deng. Jiang Qing and her people were not going to just turn over and die. They didn't have much power compared to Deng, but they did control one thing. That was ideology, something Mao would never give up on. But he clearly saw how this gang of four that Mao called them was abusing ideology for the sake of their own power grabs. As 1975 began to wind down, Mao suddenly had a change of heart. I mean, this was always the danger with Chairman Mao. He said one thing, and then later on, he would just reverse his thinking. He was doing it again, 
in October and November 1975. Maybe Mao saw Deng deconstructing the whole cultural revolution, and by extension, Mao's possible legacy in Chinese history. Well, in a sense, Deng was. All it took was a steady stream of whispering into Mao's ear from radical elements who still had access to, you know, Mao's ear to get the chairman to wake up and put his foot down. He did this by calling a Politburo meeting in November 1975 to evaluate the Cultural Revolution. Mao's position was, it was 70% good and 30% bad, and he sat and waited to see what the outcome of the Politburo meeting would be. And Mao put Deng Xiaoping to the test. He put him in charge. Well, Deng was damned if he was going to go along with Mao on this. So he didn't side either way. After all, he said, for most of the Cultural Revolution, he was in the wilderness, far from Beijing, far from all the goings-on. How could he say whether it was good or bad? Well, Deng Xiaoping fell into Mao's trap. As 1975 comes to an end, Deng Xiaoping is once again in retreat. The radicals, now emboldened by Mao's reversal of thinking about Deng, went on the attack. To Jiang Qing's utter delight, Deng was suddenly vulnerable again. This was her chance, and she won. Deng was purged again. Next time, we'll try and wind up this series on the Cultural Revolution, where we will look at the year 1976. And if you recall from the Deng Xiaoping overview episode number five, this was one hell of a year in China. So join me next time and we'll see if we can manage to squeeze all the action into one last episode. So, as the great one, Robert L. Packett, might say, I hope you enjoyed that. This is your humble host, Laszlo Montgomery, again on the run. I'm signing off from the west suburbs of my old hometown of Chicago, here on a quick in-and-out mission to meet with a customer, only here for less than 48 hours, an overnighter, back in Claremont tomorrow. So that's it for this time. I hope you'll all join me next week for the exciting conclusion of the Cultural Revolution podcast. Take care, everyone.